And this text I've entitled Solomon's Great Pleasure Experiment. He rushes headlong into an experiment wherein he tries to find lasting significance in worldly pleasures. And of course, he comes to the conclusion that all is vanity. Solomon will learn that lasting pleasure cannot ultimately be found in anything that this world has to offer. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of Where Can Meaning Be Found? A study in Ecclesiastes with Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text for today is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In his classic novel, The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway writes about a group of artists and writers pleasure-seeking in Paris after World War I. He opened his book, quoting from Ecclesiastes, naming it after this theme verse. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteneth to the place where he arose. This somewhat autobiographical book was a depiction of hedonistic lives, lives of futility. Here's part three of Where Can Meaning Be Found? We're in our series in Ecclesiastes. We looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 1, which really do serve as an introduction to the whole book and something of a synthesis of the message of the book. My intention is certainly not to cover every verse, every passage of this book, but really just to land on some of the highlights, as it were, to try and give you a feel for the book as a whole. Uh, I want to look at chapter 2 and the first 11 verses there. The word reads... I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired... I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, 
all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So reads the word of God. Concerning pleasure, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, said all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even those who hang themselves. As I think about those words and I think about the context in which Blaise Pascal was writing, as I try to imagine what it must have been like to live in the 17th century when times were very different to the way in which they are now, I imagine that maybe there were some around him who disagreed with his suggestion. All men seek happiness. This is the motive of every action, even those who hang themselves. Perhaps there were some around that philosopher who weren't quite so convinced. When I think, by contrast to our own situation, the context in which we find ourselves, this period of history, what the Western world looks like, I think Pascal was a man who knew what he was talking about. I think his words had an almost prophetic force to them. Speaking, as it were, with some kind of understanding of the times to come. Because we live in a culture which is bent on amusement, pleasure, and entertainment. It is what drives our society. The common language of today is entertainment. The first time I was interacting with this text was back in February, and it was the week of the Super Bowl final. I was told that week that 111 million people had tuned in to watch it. And in order to buy 30 seconds of advertising time during the halftime show, you would pay a cool $5 million. Because our currency is entertainment. The mantra of the society in which we live is amuse the masses. The heartbeat of civilization is pleasure. I suggested that Ecclesiastes was one of the most contemporary books of Scripture because it speaks to the issues of our time. It addresses every worldview. In 1 through 11 of chapter 1, we do have a synthesis of the whole book, and Solomon shows us there that neither man nor man's efforts or the created order can alleviate the brokenness of life. There is nothing new under the sun. Everything will be forgotten, and we are trapped, as it were, in the futility and the frustration in which we live outside of the garden. For the rest of chapter 1, Solomon shows that he pursued wisdom, learning as a means to finding eternal significance. You see in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But Solomon found that a pursuit of learning 
resulted in the same conclusion that all is vanity. This is a wonderful message to preach to college students. Student, your studies are meaningless. <laughs> well, of course I'm joking, but it is true to say that studies pursued without a right acknowledgement of God are vanity. Studies pursued without a proper acknowledgement of the Creator are meaningless. Why is that? Because life is broken, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. There is nothing that we can do. There is no amount of learning that we can gain that would change that. Indeed, studies conducted without a proper acknowledgement of God only brings about more vexation and more frustration. By contrast, the antidote is the gospel. It is always the gospel. This is why Ecclesiastes is such a wonderful book. It shows us our desperate need of a solution. It shows us how precious the gospel is. Rightly understood and rightly applied, it can be said that a child rehearsing their time's table with a proper acknowledgement of God is more eternally significant than an atheist pursuing a PhD at Cambridge, Oxford, or Harvard. He finishes his pursuit of wisdom, and in chapter two, he turns to consider pleasure. If the question was, where can meaning be found? Then tonight, the question is, where can pleasure be found? And this text I've entitled Solomon's Great Pleasure Experiment. He rushes headlong into an experiment wherein he tries to find lasting significance in worldly pleasures. And of course, he comes to the conclusion that all is vanity. Solomon will learn that lasting pleasure cannot ultimately be found in anything that this world has to offer. It is a lesson that we do well to remind ourselves of. It is a lesson that we do well to communicate to those whom God has put in our lives who do not know the Savior. Because invariably, they're pursuing pleasure apart from a right acknowledgement of God, and it would only end in frustration. A text like this, again, must point us towards the true source of lasting pleasure, the true source of joy, which is, of course, God himself. That is the meaning of this text. Solomon begins with his thesis statement. He then gives us his conclusion. And then for the rest of the text, he explains how he gets from one to the other. So look, first of all, at his thesis statement with me. In verse one, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure Enjoy yourself. That's the experiment. That's what he's pursuing right now. We can make a few observations, and the first is that Solomon is not a man who does things by halves. He's a full-on kind of guy. When he sets his mind to something, he's all in. His pursuit of learning in chapter one was full-on. His pursuit of pleasure will be exactly the same. Notice that he invokes the heart. I said in my heart... In Hebrew thinking, the heart is mission control. It is the center of thinking, is the center of emotions, it's the center of all feeling, it's the center of physical strength, it's the center of logic, and so on and so forth. It is the center of all things, and that is what he's employing to pursue pleasure. Not only that, but think about whose heart this is. As you read through Ecclesiastes, you must have the backdrop of 1 Kings 1 through 11 in your mind, which is the biblical narrative of Solomon's life. And we do well to remember that in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, God visits Solomon in a dream and says, ask whatever you want. 
In the utmost humility, Solomon says, I do not know how to go out or to come in. Far less do I know how to reign over the kingdom. Therefore, give me a heart of understanding. And God is pleased with that request. He answers his prayer far more, I think, than Solomon could ever have imagined. And he says, you have a heart of wisdom that exceeds any man that came before you and any man that comes after you. In some, Solomon was the wisest man in all the land. And it's that heart that's being applied to pursue pleasure here. And then look at the language he uses. He says, come now, I will test you. Solomon is running so hard and so fast into this pleasure experiment, you could never accuse him of simply dipping his toe in the water. He's not just skirting around the edges of pleasure. And think about the fact that here is the most successful king of all of Israel, and there was nothing that was not available to him. There was no pleasure that he couldn't have. Wealth, women, physical, sensual, whatever he wanted, it was there for him. So for however long it was in Solomon's life that he pursued this experiment, every inclination of his heart was saying, pleasure yourself, indulge yourself, seek pleasure as the means to eternal satisfaction. And with this precedent set, he jumps immediately to his conclusion and he says, but behold, this also was vanity. You remember that word from last week? It's instructive in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Over and over again it occurs. Vanity talks to us about the fleeting nature of things. Like a breath on a cold day, it vanishes. You see it only for it to disappear. That is how Solomon describes life. And here in chapter 2, that is how he describes pleasure. What we have then is the same tension that we saw last week in verse 1 to verse 2 of chapter 1. It's that same tension here in chapter 2. If any man should have been able to find lasting satisfaction in the pursuit of pleasure, it should have been this man. If there was any man for whom this experiment should have worked out well, it was Solomon. And yet as we move from verse 1... Towards the end, we see his conclusion, and he says, it was vanity. Is this as total as a statement as it seems to be? Is he talking about all pleasure? Well, yes. He says in verse 2, I said of laughter, that should be understood as a, a reference to more kind of surface level enjoyment. Of laughter, he said, it is mad. And then he says, of pleasure, which is a reference to more significant, deep, meaningful enjoyment. Of that, he says, what use is it? So Solomon pursued the full gambit, and all of his pursuits were found wanting. Now, at this point, we dwell a pause, and we simply calibrate. We need to think about what the issue is and what's at stake. The Bible does not tell us that pleasure is necessarily a bad thing. The Bible does not say that to laugh and to enjoy ourselves is a sin necessarily. The issue, as we'll see throughout this passage, is not pleasure in and of itself. It is the means by which we obtain pleasure. 
Ecclesiastes is the memoirs of an old man, an aged Solomon, who's reflecting on some bad choices that he made in life. As you look at that narrative in the book of Kings, you see a man who, yes, led the people in worship. Yes, at one time he did lead the people in prayer, and yes, at one time he did worship the Lord. But so subtly, so steadily, we have the testimony of a man who slowly turned his back upon God. A man who started to live his life without a proper acknowledgement of the Lord. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, an old Solomon looks back and he reflects on the life that he had lived. Here, he notes the time in which he pursued pleasure, where God was nowhere in the picture, and that's the issue. And he says that pursuit of pleasure without a proper acknowledgement of the Creator is absolute vanity. Every pursuit of pleasure that is not ultimately sourced in God is fleeting and futile. It may bring temporary gratification, but eventually it will only bring frustration. And this is what Solomon is telling us. Now, how specifically then did Solomon pursue pleasure? There are at least three ways that I want to show you in this text, three ways in which Solomon pursued pleasure, a life of self-indulgence, all of them found to be meaningless. The first I've called pleasure by escape, pleasure by escape. And we see that in verse 3. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Notice the heart language again. That is a strong and a significant heart that is being invoked. What is it doing? It's drinking wine. Now, this is not referring to drunkenness. You see the qualifying statement there, with my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Solomon is not drinking to the point of losing self-control. He is drinking to cheer his body. What does that mean? He says, to lay hold of folly, which I think is a reference to some kind of light-spiritedness. For what reason? To see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. Now, every part of that sentence is significant, so we'll deal with them in turn. Beginning with the children of man. You may remember last week, I suggested that Ecclesiastes shows many, many connections with the first few chapters of Genesis. Solomon intentionally writes this book in such a way that our thought should be going back to the first few chapters of our Bibles, with the significance being that what he's trying to show us in this book is what life looks like outside of the garden. We are now east of Eden, and the phrase children of man is one of those references. More literally, you would translate it sons of Adam. These are the offspring of the individual who caused all of creation to come tumbling down. These are the ones who come from Adam, who was the transgressor that caused us to live outside of the garden. He goes on and says, under heaven, the children of man to do under heaven. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this phrase is somewhat synonymous with the phrase under the sun, which we find throughout the book, and it refers to a limited worldview. It refers to the fact that we don't often have eternal things in mind. 
as sons of Adam that live east of Eden, all too often we simply look at the world around us and we don't consider an eternal perspective. And then he gives us another phrase that says the few days of their life. This is a veiled, subtle reference to death. Death which came about because of the fall. And so Solomon is piling up the terms in order to make us realize and think about the fact that we do live in a sin-cursed world. We are all of us on the treadmill of life. We cannot get off it. We are stuck within the prison of futility, and there is nothing that we can do to get out of it. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to alleviate the situation in which we find ourselves. And yet Solomon is drinking wine. Why? To see what was good. Friends, with all of the connections back to Genesis, is that one word good not also something of a loaded term? You see, it was God and God alone who had the ability and the right to create that which was good. It was God and God alone who said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw that it was good. God and God alone said, let there be day and night, and there was, and he saw that it was good. It was God that created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. He made them, and they were good. It is God and God alone who can bring about circumstances which will elevate the heart and the mind out of the monotony of life east of Eden. It is his prerogative to create that which is good. He and he alone can offer us something that is genuinely unwaveringly good. That is God's business, and it is not man's business. We cannot create something which is good in the way that God can create something which is good. Our drinking of wine, our laying hold of folly, whatever pursuit we do pursue in life, is never going to be the means by which we alleviate the situation of the broken reality east of Eden. What does all of this mean? Solomon was seeking pleasure by trying to escape. This child of Adam was trying to obtain joy by relieving himself of the reality of life outside of the garden. Rather than living in that reality, he was seeking an escape route. He sought that which was good without any reference to God. Here we can remind ourselves of the nature of this book. Ecclesiastes is a reality check. Ecclesiastes is a slap in the face. It wakes us up from any perceived notion of Christian sentimentality. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In our culture of good health, affluence, and entertainment-seeking, we might observe that enthusiasm for it does not often bring contentment. Pastor Donnie Friedrichsen, in his recent Table Talk article, The Love of the Present World, quotes the Apostle Paul in what could be, quote, some of the saddest verses in the Bible. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Ecclesiastes author, King Solomon, wrote this late in his life after straying far from God in pursuit of pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. 
If we followers of Christ are not leaning on Him, but pursuing the good life, we should ask, how's that working out for me and those I love? If you'd like to learn more about the world as God sees it, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll find an archive of gospel and hope-filled teachings. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow, it's part four in our series, Where Can Meaning Be Found? I hope you'll join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.